2: gets his name on the Stonehaven Cup. Leashed into 11-under. We've got a new leader, kids. Here it is! Adam Scott! A life changer. Coming up next, you have unrestricted access to golf across Australia and the world. Thanks to Golf Australia, we're going Inside the Ropes.
3: Welcome to a special edition of Inside the Ropes episode 30. We've been here... For 30 weeks, strangely enough, Mark Hayes and I, along with uh, a guest uh, call of Absolute Luminaries. It's been fun, Hazy.
4: It's been tremendous fun. I um, I hope it comes across, Andy, because we really enjoy putting it together, and I hope the enthusiasm we have for the product comes across in everyone's ears.
3: It certainly does when I listen back to it, which uh, is difficult to do listening to your own voice, but mm-hmm. I enjoy listening to everybody else's, and that's what we're going to do on this special podcast, uh, invite all of the regulars who have been part of Of the show to give us their favourite moments. It's like picking um, your favourite child, really, because there's Uh, too many to choose from.
4: It's brutal. Um, I think it's actually impossible to pick out because there's so many things that make you smile and laugh every week, or they do to me, anyhow. And, you know, we've probably settled on a lot of things that are higher profile, um, but I would happily sit here and listen to a couple of interviews we did from the bush. And one of the great things of Inside the Ropes is the grassroots stuff, yeah, um, which we'll promise to bring back more of that uh, as we go. Um, but, yeah, some of the you know the Queensland Sandscrape Championships or, yeah, he, you know, the, stuff. Yeah. the the, the – I've forgotten her name right now, which I apologize for, but the beautiful female greenskeeper in Perth and great interviews. Um, I probably should go and find her name before we finish this, but it's really bad. But, you know, some of the bizarre things, I, I think um, Jed Morgan – it's great. Just a complete lunatic young guy from Queensland. I love him already. So, uh, you know, those things probably go through to the keeper, but we've got some pretty high-profile ones too.
3: Indeed, and some of your editorials deserved replay. but we would have been here for far too long, and it's far <laughs> too difficult to choose the best from the best regarding all of that. Jo Charlton was one of our special guests, and we're going to kick it off with her favourite moment, of the initial series of Inside the Ropes, it's
5: been an absolute pleasure to walk inside the ropes with you all this year on our very first podcast with Golf Australia. My highlight, no doubt, the very gracious and legendary Ian Baker Finch. Enjoy listening and have a very safe and merry Christmas. Catch you later.
3: Your triumph back in '91 is you know sharply in focus. It, it must be you know it must be a really nice. Is it a really nice time when? You know, your championship amongst others um, there uh, remembered the way it's remembered given the fact that, you know, we look to crown the next Royal Birkdale Open champion?
6: Yeah, I, I look forward to the Open Championship every year. It was always um, the, the big event of, as a kid. You know, this putt was to in the Open Championship when I was practicing against... Jack and Arnold Palmer and uh, Tom Weisskopf and Tom Watson and Gary Player when I was a kid back in the days. You know, those imaginary games around the backyard and our home course, courses, it was always to be open. And then to play in it in 1984 and uh, see that I could mix it with the best and then eventually get to win it. Um, special times every year at the Open Championship. And then, as you say, when it goes back to Royal Birkdale, it just rekindles... So Many wonderful memories, and leading up to it, you know, I've been tweeting sometimes, uh, you know, a couple of old swings from back then in '91, or you know, a couple of pictures of Hayley and I and uh, Mr. Claret Jug, things like that. Yeah, it's very special, it's it's a big part of my life, obviously.
4: So, Finch, you will come back to a bit more of 1991, but you mentioned 1984 there. You know, you, you head to St Andrews for your first uh, Open Championship. You later said that that taught you a lot about what you needed to do to win the Open itself. You were right in the mix there until that last round as a, as a first-timer. What what was that experience like? That's unbelievable, especially at the home of golf. Yeah, it was
6: incredible. I, I was there, I was 23 at the first Open, and uh, I, I led the first three days, so um, actually I was 68 the first day. I was in second. I think Billy really long knew I shot 66. And then I had 66 the second day, and I was well in front. Played with Nick Valdo the third day, and uh, shot 71, continued to lead. So I was in the last group on the Sunday with Tom Watson. And Tom was going for three in a row, and his sixth Open Championship. And I was playing with him. So it was obviously a lot of... Who's this Australian kid with a double-barreled name? Was the... British press, and um, uh, you know Tom Watson going three six, so it's pretty special. But the, 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 one of the best memories I have of that—so uh, many great memories—but one thing was watching Seve. Tom Watson and I stood on the back of the 17th green, which is essentially the 18th tree as well, and we watched Sevy in that navy blue sweater that he wore for the next six years over Sunday. You know, pumping his fist. Um, in, in celebration as he made birdie on the 72nd hole and Seve won that 1984 Open. So some great memories of, of being paired with Tom in such a special Open, always special at St Andrews, and watching Seve so excitedly, uh, you know, pumping the fist as he made the win. And Tom, I think, had to birdie to tie. He had to hold his second shot to win. And he paced the paced the shot. He drove it off the tee and then paced his second shot. And uh, unfortunately, for him, they're uh, done. But anyway, great, memories, and made it uh, made me realise that hey, uh, I can play it at such a high level, not just play in the Open Championship, but maybe make my goal to win it.
4: And it probably y- y- your next phase of the learning lesson to be able to get across the line in '91 probably happened six years later from mm-hmm. from reading some of the stuff you've said in the in the interim. Uh, back at St Andrews again, you put yourself in the mix with another legendary name of golf and, and obviously a good colleague of yours now, Nick Feldo.
6: Yeah, that's right. I, I shot 64 on the Saturday and uh, was in second place. Nick was leading, but I was in the last pairing again on the Sunday at St Andrews. Uh, another fantastic opportunity and moment and watch Nick when Nick did so well in that period from 87 through uh, 92. He was the best in the world, I believe, in the majors. He won five in that period from 87 to 92, and then, of course, he won again in 96 for Masters through six. But I saw really what you have to do and how you have to grind it out, and that was the biggest learning step for me for the next year when I had a chance to win at Virtaille.
5: Yeah, Finchie, so you wrap all that experience into one and you come to 91. Royal Birkdale, what are the keys to success? What, what do the players need to do next week um, to, hold, to hold that cup?
6: Joe, there's so many things. that I promise you, the number one thing in any major is to be able to get there in the frame of mind that you have done your work prior and you are ready to go and you're going to treat this week like any other week. You know it's special. You know you've worked your ass off to get there. You know you've done everything you possibly can to play at your best level, your highest level. But then you have to be able to sit back and say, I'm just going to play. I'm not going to get flustered. I'm not going to let the moment get the better of me. I'm not going to start thinking about what this is all about or what, what it's for, or how special it would be. All of those things could come through your mind and just go play golf like it's any other week. And that is the hardest thing because you're so pumped up and you're so ready. Um, I can't fathom Tiger Woods and certainly the great Jack Nicklaus or any of those great players, any of the multiple major winners Mm. that had a period of time in their life where they were in that frame of mind multiple times that they could in multiple majors, and it's uh, that's that's the key to be able to go play the way you know you can under extreme pressure, and not let the moment or the week or the uh, that tension get to you.
3: It's fascinating, Ian, listening to you talk about that because you know Hazy Joe and I am sure you know in the last couple of days knowing you were coming on, have dive back into all the bits and pieces we can find from 91 and about 91 and you know you shoot that 64 in the third round to put yourself right in the mix. And pre-round or it, when you've been talking about, you know, post winning it you, you said all you wanted to do was stay out of your own way. Just don't get in my own way in that final round. That's easier said than done, I imagine. Like that did you have a did you have some sort of technique that allowed you to do what you did, you know, in the front nine of that final round?
6: I had a breathing technique that I'd been using. I'd I'd been practicing it for a couple of months before. Uh, I actually put a steam room in at my house and uh, and practiced it in the steam room. Um, A young guy had been coaching me on it, um, relaxing in a pool, uh, sort of floating in a pool at night and uh, breathing in the steam room and, and then practicing it out on course. And the breathing technique is what really I think allowed me to stay focused and calm and relaxed and all of those clichés that we always talk about, you know, staying in the zone. But I really was so focused that I kept focusing on my breathing and my breathing techniques, and that, I think, is what allowed me to stay out of my own way and, and play the tournament like it was just any other event. Which is really easy to say and so hard to do. Oh, God, I just <laughs>
3: imagine.
4: That's an amazing story, especially great preparation for the that, you know, drowning humidity of Liverpool, Finchie. <laughs>
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the hard thing there is the, it's, uh You've got a sweater and a vest and rain gear. <laughs> <laughs> when it gets to 70 degrees the sweater, you know, over there, it's like a heat wave when it gets about like 75. And then you've got the the reindeer on. It rains parts of the day, especially on the Sunday. And then you've got the uh, the, the sweater when when the wind blows and it get a bit cool coming off the water as the tide changes. Uh, yeah, you never you're never too sure. Uh, you've got to be prepared over there, that's <laughs> for sure.
4: So, mate, you walk onto the the first tee on the final round, and y- you know you've you've got everything under control, as we've just learned. You make a near, well, you nearly make a birdie, I suppose, on the first, and then everything just lights up. Your putters in control, your irons are just mint. Suddenly, you're on track to one of the great nine holes in major championship history. Trying to convert your first or your third chance at winning an open, how do you stay in that moment? How do you not think about what's ahead? Nine holes ahead. I had a lot of things going for me. The fact that
6: I've been in that last pairing, a couple of times before, so that didn't fluster me, and I was happy to tee off last. Uh, I was happy to be in the lead, so I tied for the lead. Uh, I played with Mark O'Neill, who was a very good friend of mine. We lived in Florida and practiced regularly together, so we were very good friends and remain good friends to this day. Uh, he, he, in fact, went on to win in '98 at Royal Birchdale, which was another special moment I'll share with you sometime. So I had a couple of things like that going for me. I was in great form at the top five in nearly every tournament when I played the two months leading in. Um, I had my wife, Kenny, who was six months pregnant with Laura, with me and Haley, a two-year-old, and that played in the garden with Hayley for an hour or two before the late tea time that day. We had a house rented just down the street. I had Steve Bann staying with me, who was there um, coaching Robert Allenby and and, helping Robert in his uh, first Open Championship. I actually had a couple of practice rounds with Robert. So everything just seemed to be as you would plan it. You know, everything was uh, ready to go. So there was nothing special about it. I got to the first tee early. Uh, focused for five or six minutes quietly by myself on the first tee and prepared myself for the round and just went out and played and um, did, did what I had planned on doing or what I had visualised doing, and that was playing sensibly and getting the ball where I aimed it and making a few putts, which was hard to do that year. The greens weren't great at Royal Berthdale that year. Everyone was complaining about them early in the week. They gradually got a little better as time went on. And uh, I made five putts for Birdie on the front nine and uh, just keep uttered the rest on the way home, just sort of hung
5: on. <laughs> so oh, Finchie there too, what you're what you talking...
6: Everything fell into place.
5: Sorry, Finchie, I cut you off there. But what you're talking about sorry, there is preparation, so and the calmness and I suppose the normality that good thorough preparation can give you. Was that something that you would have executed week in, week out or was that sort of a special major um, sort of experience?
6: I think you focus harder in a major. I mean, everyone talks about it, don't they? Uh, You know, you listen to Adam Scott and Jason Day and Greg back in the day when all of our top players talked about we build our whole schedule for the year around the majors. The majors are what means most to you and to your career at the end of your career your performances in majors, so everything's built around them and around the time and the schedule throughout the year. You maybe focus a little harder because you know it's a special week, but what I was saying before is you then have to, although you are prepared so well and you're so pumped up and you're so ready to go, you then have to bring that amp down somewhat. To allow you to just go play like it is any other week. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the hard thing that the real champions have been able to, uh,
1: to figure out. G'day, I'm My Golf Ambassador Jason Day. I'm really excited to be an ambassador for My Golf, Australian Golf's national junior program, jointly run by Golf Australia and the PGA. My Golf is every Aussie kid's first step on their golfing pathway. It's all about teaching children the basic skills of golf in a safe and healthy environment. And just as importantly, about the life skills that golf can teach you that distinguish our sport from the rest. Remember to visit mygolf.org.au for more information.
0: G'day, it's Nick O'Hearn here. Whenever I get the chance, I catch up with Inside the Ropes to follow up on all the latest golf. And I urge you all to do the same. It's a great show.
2: Pick one thing
4: about the year that you love, they tell me. In case you haven't worked it out, it's Ali Whitaker here. And I think my favorite thing this year has got to be the semi-sponsorship we've had from Hannah Green. We've mentioned her about 45 times. I don't think we even had 45 episodes, so do the math on that one. But a true up-and-coming star in Australian women's golf. Three wins on the Symmetra Tour, the U.S. Secondary Tour, and she earned herself a tour card on the LPGA for 2018 and she's just effortlessly cool in a way that Marquez truly isn't so I think that's why I love her so much it was great when we caught up with her for an interview I hope you guys enjoy it
3: there's nearly been a week go by on Inside oh. the Ropes this year where the name Hannah Hazy has not been mentioned.
4: Andy, I was absolutely disgusted last week. <laughs> okay, we, what missed, doing? we missed bifurcation and we missed <laughs> Hannah Green. And and we had a flood of callers. Just, get, what are you doing? So we've had to right the ship in a big way this week.
3: Uh, so we haven't got bifurcation on, but we have got <laughs> Hannah Green on the show who's been making some significant waves over there in the US on her first year as a pro on the Symmetra Tour. She joins us on Inside the Ropes. Hannah, great to have you on the show.
5: Thanks for
3: having me. Have you... um, There's a lot of stuff we want to talk to you about, and it's lovely to talk to you as opposed to talking about you for a change, but um, have you, in a nutshell, kind of exceeded all your own expectations this first year out?
5: Um, Yeah, I think so. I mean, I won my fourth event over on the Symmetra Tour. I knew I was capable of winning, but I really didn't think it would come so early in the season. Um, I definitely put myself in good position um, for my next six events, to hopefully secure my LPGA card. But I did, uh, obviously, I have all my goals, but I think I've achieved them them a bit quicker than what I thought. So that's always a bonus. So, yeah.
3: How much pressure does that take off you? I mean, it's remarkable that you can head out your first year, still a teenager, and win a professional tournament on the other side of the planet. In terms of um, just releasing the pressure on you and making you feel like you belong and you're comfortable and you, you know, okay, I've got this... How big an achievement was that for you?
5: Oh, definitely. Um, obviously, being in the top 10, is it's quite a hard goal to achieve because it's completely out of your hands. Like, you have to play as well as you can, but um, some weeks you don't play well. So, for me to be inside the top uh, 10 um, since my fourth event, it's been really, yeah, like you said, it's definitely helped the pressure. Um, I've still quite got a little bit of a buffer. Um, I've still obviously got to perform well in my last six events, but... The pressure's not there for me to have to have a
2: win to creep back into the top 10, so that's nice. And how's it been uh, as a pro out on the tour? You know, like I remember Sue O going over to the Symmetra Tour a couple of years ago, and she really, really struggled with the personal aspects, the living away from home, being away from family, that sort of stuff, and even just the going from city to city, the money aspects, all that sort of stuff. How's that been going for you, and what are your living arrangements and that kind of thing?
5: Yeah, so I still live in Perth with my parents. Um, I haven't actually gotten a base over in the US just yet. Um, I found like it took financially, it was just not, uh, I guess, in the plans to do it this year. Um, never really would have had the chance to actually been um, home. So I've been on the road for four months. Just living out of the suitcase uh, with my golf club. so it's it's a lot harder than you think. Um,
2: and that's expensive, isn't it? I mean, your, your prize money just for the listeners to get a gauge of this—you've won fifty-seven grand this year. So, yes. a lot of that's going to be eaten up uh, by the travel.
5: Yes, exactly. Um, luckily, I've been with with the Symmetra Tour. You can actually drive to events, and we can also get housing every week. Um, so, that obviously, that limits some costs, but still for. An Australian to be all the way over in the US is going to be expensive, um, I was, but I think I've done all right this year. I've tried to limit my expenses as much as I can without, you know, not treating myself right. So
4: I was going to ask you about that, and it's when you say on the road, you are literally on the road, aren't you? Like yeah. you, you must have seen some incredible things on the on the interstates and hopefully off the interstate freeway system.
5: <laughs> yes, we've um, we've done a lot of driving, a lot more than what I've been used to a bit living in Perth it's not like I will just drive over to Melbourne for a quick trip but um no it's been a lot of fun I've been hanging out with uh the other Australians and Kiwis on tour and we've tried to do some touristy stuff along the way which is a good thing when you've been away for so long it's nice to break it up a little bit but um no I think I've done pretty well this year.
4: What are some of the cool things you've done?
5: Um we got to well all of us Australians were in. Um, San Francisco, we went to Niagara Falls three or four weeks ago, so we there's not too many places that we can say we can do big things like that, but when we get the chance to, we definitely wouldn't uh, put it aside, so, yeah.
3: yeah. Look, reading about you, Hannah, you are clearly, for a long time now, I mean, you know, you're 19 now and you're you know, six-time um, WA state squad, member. You've, you've been playing this game, you know, in earnest for a long time now, mm-hmm. and it sounds like you're really committed to the. This is what you do. You, know, you see yourself as a golfer, and you know you do what it takes to be the best player you can be. Mm-hmm. Um, it can consume you a little bit, I reckon. Any time people get you know that far into the zone of any of this sort of stuff, have you? How, how conscious are you at this young age of your kind of golf life balance, getting that right? Yeah,
5: definitely, because. There's a, like a lot of, I was at um, Mount Woolley and I did a junior clinic and I see, all, I, the thing I told the kids was just make sure that you have balance in your life. Um, I remember the year after I graduated high school, I wasn't working or anything, so I was literally at golf every day, just hitting balls and, you know, putting and chipping and I ended up going backwards almost mm. and I was just too much, too technical and I literally didn't have a social life and I think that really, I guess, shocked me and so i've definitely tried to balance my life as much as i can obviously i don't practice i must say i don't practice as long as i used to but what i do now is definitely more um, appropriate and going to benefit me so yeah i I really think it's important mixing and balancing your life definitely hey it's jeff ogilvy
1: i can't be in Australia very often but i love keeping up with everything on inside the rope podcast
2: Good bunch of guys and i love listening
4: it's Mark Hayes. Thanks so much for listening to Inside the Ropes this year. It's been fantastic to be able to bring an innovative golf product to you. Hopefully, um, I'm sure we'll be back bigger and better next year. Uh, We really appreciate all your support. For me this year, I loved all the interviews. I love all the banter as well, but the interviews were spectacular. I loved the one with Ian Baker Finch and uh, his memories of winning the Open Championship. So many great interviews, Catherine Kirk, and uh, it goes on and on. I really liked the one with Nick Flanagan as well, but my favorite was one of our own. Uh, Mike Clayton and he's when we were conversing with Jared Felton he uh, let it slip about how he, he used to uh, get a little bit randy on the text messages For those who don't
2: know, Jared's partner is Hannah Green, uh, they've been together for quite a long time now. What do you talk about when you're at home? Do you talk about golf all the time or do you talk about everything else but golf?
3: Um, obviously it's hard not to talk about golf, um, but we try and keep away from it as much as we
1: can How do long distance relationships work in this era when it's so much easier to communicate. I mean, we were, I mean, I was married, but Debbie and I were, I mean, she was on the other side of the world, but I remember sending Talixes, which for people who remember what Talixes were, they weren't the best way to communicate. And phone calls cost fortunes and, you know, flying home was expensive. And now it's, it's, the world's such a small place that I'm assuming it's much easier to have a relationship with someone when you're on opposite sides of the world. Just Skype and phone That's calls are that. cheaper and emails yeah. and. You know, it, must, it must be so much easier to stay in touch.
6: Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a lot easier. Um, you got Facebook and uh, Skype and FaceTime, all that sort of stuff, and you just call. No problem. It's just using the internet now. So, yeah.
4: Not a problem at all. Clayton would have been pretty hard to send a racy telex. A racy telex, yeah, stop. <laughs>
1: Dot. Need sex, stop.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the Golf Australia website is now the place to go to look up your handicap and so much more. Whether you're out and about on your phone or in the office trying to avoid work, just go to golf.org.au and punch your golf link number into the box at the top of the homepage. Who knows? Maybe that last round was just good enough to put you in single figures. While you're on the site, check out the daily golf results at your club, view our course index for up-to-date ratings, read the latest golf news from home and abroad, listen to Australian golf podcasts and interviews, and watch video tournament highlights or tips to improve your game. It's everything a golf tragic could want. Visit golf.org.au today, the home of Australian golf.
3: G'day, I'm Greg Chalmers. I'm a long way from home here in Dallas, Texas, but I love catching up with all the Aussie
6: golf news on Inside the
3: Ropes. It's been a great year on Inside the Ropes, covered everything uh, at home and abroad, obviously, and we couldn't have done it without the voice and brain of Mike Clayton, who has been an integral part of the program. And don't blush and roll your eyes, Clayton, so I mean every single syllable of all of that. It's been great to have you on the show. We've, we've done a lot and we've spoken a lot about golf on the way through. Has there been... One particular memory of you know some of the chats or the interviews we did throughout the year that's been a highlight for you.
1: Well, i would be no surprise that my favourite shows were David Graham and Bruce Devlin because I grew up watching those guys as a kid. You know they were gods in Australia. So, thought able to talk to Bruce Devlin and have him at eighty still, you know sharp as a tack, reminisce about you know his time driving to the US Amateur with Jack Nicklaus and just his memories of playing golf in Australia and what just just what a nice man he is. You know he's the nicest. He, was, he named his son after Kel Nagel because Kel was the nicest bloke in golf, but he had a pretty close rival in Bruce Devlin.
4: Bruce, uh, welcome all the way from Texas.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's uh, nice to be here. 80, 80 years old and one day old.
4: <laughs> 80 years young, though, I believe. You're still still travelling beautifully.
0: Uh, well, I'm still doing okay, I guess, considering.
4: Mate, how does 19, when we say the 1960 Australian Open champion, when, how does that sound to you? Does it sound ancient history or does it sound like yesterday?
0: No, it, well, it's, it has a, a dual significance, I guess. You know, I, I was, uh, certainly wasn't expected to win the Open back then as an amateur, and I had played not so good in the games uh, prior to the Open. I forget how many times I lost for New South Wales, probably a couple of times at least. And then to win the Open and uh, beat, a, beat a dear old friend of mine, Teddy Ball, that was, a, that was pretty exciting, and to leave, Peter Thompson and Kel Nagel behind was pretty special really.
4: So when you say New South Wales there, am I right in saying it was the Interstate Series that you played a couple of weeks previous?
0: Correct, it was. Yeah, it sure was.
4: It's a a massive step up when we think about it these days to the Australian Open from the Interstate Series, but at the time there were quite a few amateurs in the field, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon. Uh, Did it seem like a big step to you?
0: Uh, I don't know, I guess... I guess it was in one way, although I've had, a, uh, I've had an extended relationship with Kel Nagel for a very, very long time uh, since I, was, I played in a golf tournament with him when I was 17 years old. So, uh, you know, I felt comfortable in the fact that, uh, that just he alone was there was, uh, was enough to me to sort of calm me down. I mean, I never, I never thought really that much about winning it until sort of the end.
2: Bruce, you were an amateur at the time, as as you mentioned, uh, but you were about 22, 23 years of age, I understand, so nowadays to us, that seems late to be, you, I think you might have turned pro the next year, is that right?
0: Yeah, I didn't turn pro until uh, April of 62. Well, the first tournament I played in for cash, uh, Mike Clayton, no, none of you guys would know because you're all too damn young, but... Um, <laughs> When I turned pro in Australia, I couldn't accept any prize money. No,
1: well, Bruce, we spoke with Roger Davis about this because, yeah, in 1974, Roger finished sixth in the fifth in the Australian Open at Karen at Carin up, ironically, and oh. got no money. So, so there was what six months with no twelve months twelve months where you couldn't get any money. It was outrageous when you think about it.
0: Correct. You had to you had to prove that you could make a living, which was a, you know really a crock, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it was just the it. club pros on their patch, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, not only that, but, I, I'm, you know, I'm, my, my memory's a little bit foggy about... But I believe that I won a couple of golf tournaments that year, too. Uh, as, as a, what would you call it, an apprentice pro?
1: Probationary pro, I think they call it, whatever, yeah.
0: And I had to, I had to actually write a letter to the PGA of Australia to get permission to play in the 1962 Masters because it was three weeks earlier than my one-year probation. The, oh.
1: the U.S. Masters?
0: Yeah, the Masters
4: in <laughs> Augusta, Georgia. <laughs> well, it's just so far-fetched for anyone coming through now to hear
2: that.
0: Yeah, well, well it's, it's pretty ridiculous, really, when you think about it, yeah. but that that's, that's exactly how it happened.
2: Tell us about the 60 Open. You shot 69-69-69, uh, so you were clearly in front, I think, after three days, and then 75 in the last round, you got there by... Well, shot. Do you remember much about it?
0: <laughs> a bit shaky the the last round. Uh, you know, when, when you start to realise that you got an opportunity to win the open, it's a pretty special sort of thing. And then um, I I can remember my uh, my last three shots clearly. I, I drove it okay on the last hole, then I pulled my second shot down underneath the green, and then got it up and down from about eight feet to win. So it was. Uh, was pretty nervous.
2: <laughs> was Teddy Ball in your group, or had he already posted his score? No, no, or...
0: he'd already posted his. Yeah,
2: yeah. So you yeah, needed that yeah. eight footer to win.
0: Yeah.
1: So
2: Ted had won the amateur of the week. I think you was. It,
1: well, am I right to say that they played the interstate series, then the amateur, and then the open three weeks in a row? That's. Is it...
0: Um, you know, I I can't. To be honest with you, I can't remember. All I remember is I was on the on the New South Wales team and 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 didn't perform. Uh, at my best during that series.
2: What does your win in the Australian Open mean to you? Where does that kind of sit?
0: Well, it sits at the top. Uh, you know, I've had a I've had a great career around the world, but uh, you know, if if I if I look at how that career, you know, got started, it got started at the Open. You know, it was nice to win the New South Wales Amateur, it was nice to win the Australian Amateur, but to win the Australian Open and. Uh, I mean, I had, to be honest with you, I had no intentions of turning pro. Uh, I came home from work one day, and my wife was sitting with Norman von Neider in the, in the rented flat we had in Goulburn. And I said, What the hell are you doing here, Norman? He said, Well, I come to talk you, talk you into turning pro, and your wife thinks you should. Yeah. So she well, ganged up on me.
5: Hi, this is Sherelle McMahon. Swing Fit is the fun, healthy, social way for women to get started in golf. You'll learn the basics of the golf swing and how to putt over a six week program and get your whole body moving through yoga and Pilates style exercises. You don't need any golf knowledge or equipment. Simply turn up in comfy clothing and get started. You'll be surrounded by like minded people and receive constant support. So get outdoors, meet new friends, and learn a sport that you can play for the rest Hey, of your life, to find a program near you, visit swingfit.com.au.
6: Hi, hey, this is Rod Pampling. Anytime you guys want to tune in and find out what's happening around the world, listen to Inside the Ropes. Great, uh, great way to find out what the Aussies
3: are doing. Keep gears on. It's been great being part of Inside the Ropes to be able to sit here and listen to uh, great golf people and great golf minds uh, educate us all about the game. And we all, I certainly finish every episode thinking I know a bit more about the caper than I did before and hopefully... You feel the same way. On the way through, we ran the series road to the Open in the lead up to the Australian Open, and it was an absolute joy to sit back and listen to the stories of past winners of our national championship, and it was particularly great to have some time with David Graham, who... It's probably been a bit misunderstood, perhaps, in Australian golf. I don't think he really gets the recognition domestically that he deserves two-time major champion winner, obviously spent most of his time away from Australia as an adult, and he's sort of a bit out of sight, out of mind to a large degree. But to sit back and listen to him reminisce on his magnificent career was an absolute highlight for me. Hi, David. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Nice to be with you. It's great to have you with us. It really is and we're looking forward to spending some time having a chat to you about this and a few other things obviously. Okay. Uh, 77's a long time ago, Dave. W- when we ask you to kind of reflect um to, you know, that that year and um what the open how the open the Australian Open played out for you and what it meant to you. How, how vivid are those memories?
6: Well, they're actually still very vivid because I was fortunate to come back uh, for their hundredth year celebration, and I've been a member at the Australian Golf Club for many, many years, and it was really nice to receive their wonderful hospitality and everything. And uh, it was also, you know, great because uh, I think it was either the first or the second year after Jack Nicklaus had redone the Australian that I'd won, and it was uh, uh, in obviously financed in those days by the, the late great. Kerry Packer. So uh, he resurrected the Australian Open and the year that I particularly won had a wonderful field and uh, it was really uh, a launching pad for the Open Championship to get back in the world, world acclaim.
4: How important was Kerry Packer at that time, David? I mean, We, we sort of gloss over him in golfing terms but everyone sort of uh, links his name with cricket but he did so much for Australian golf at that time, didn't he? What, what was your personal relationship with him?
6: Well, I didn't know him all that well. Um, I spent I, quite a bit of time with him when he was uh, getting tutored by the great uh, Norman Von Neider, and obviously he had brought uh, Jack Nicklaus and Arnold Palmer and Gary Player in a very large, world-class field to play in the Open and kind of resurrected it a little bit. And he put a lot of money into the tournament, and he put a lot of money into the Australian Golf Club, and he converted the Australian from an old kind of linksy style design, which was, you know, shallow bunkers and very benign greens and everything. He he brought Jack Nicklaus in and made the Australian Golf Club, uh, you know, one of the great courses in the world. And um, so his contribution to golf was really incredible.
3: Did you see him around the Open when you were playing, um, you know, through that period, David?
6: Oh, absolutely! He was out there all the time. He, uh, the week before the open, he would take Jack Nicholas up to the Great Barrier Reef, and they would go uh, marlin fishing. And then a lot of players would stay at his house, and a lot of the golfers in those days were fond of playing tennis, so they would play tennis. And he was uh, he was a great host. He was uh, wonderful. Uh, he brought the world's best to, to play in the Australian Open. We were very fortunate.
3: We, we spoke to Bob Shearer about him a couple of weeks ago on the show as part of this series, and, and Bob remembered going to um, Kerry's home and pictures of wild animals devouring um, other um, less... <laughs> Capable animals in the wild. <laughs> yeah. Did did you ever did big paintings and photos all over? It, did you ever go to Kerry's house and can you oh, validate? Sure I did, I, did I, lots of times. Yes. Can you remember paintings and pictures like that strewn I, all over uh, the place?
6: Kerry had anything that he wanted. Kerry had <laughs> right. he had a massive big house and he had whatever he wanted and television sets everywhere and yeah he was great food always on the on the buffet table and everything yeah he was. He was remarkable and he had that one little room where he would go and sit in his great big leather chair and watch television and uh, yeah he was a, he was a character but uh, his country I, the one thing that I remember very vividly was that uh, I think maybe uh, Jack or Arnold had complained about the practice balls range balls on on the uh, on the practice fairway at the open there at the Australian and so about the next day, uh, he brought in, I don't know how many thousands of dozens of Dunlop, like, 65 golf balls, and opened up buckets full of brand new balls. And by about Friday night or Saturday morning, there was none of them left. All the caddies and all the players had stuffed their bags with all these balls. <laughs>
4: yeah. oh, Magnificent.
6: Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I'm sure that a lot of people remember
4: that, yeah. So, David, on just the field, you referred to the field. I mean, this is the one you conquered, and we'll talk to you more about how you did it in a second. But aside from all the great Australian names, we're looking at, you know, Palmer, Nicholas. Yeah. Uh, Charles, um, Lidsky, January. yeah, Litsky, January. We've got Ray Floyd. Um, yeah. I, I can see on the list down here a B Jones, but I don't think that was Bobby at that time. Brian Jones. <laughs> no, I do so. yeah. But and, and a really good missed the cut, and a really fantastic player called Mark Hayes too. I just want to get that on yeah, the record. No,
3: Hugh Green was there, and it was amazing.
4: It, it, it's an extraordinary field, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it
6: was, and he paid for it. He made it all possible, and Qantas were, I think, the sponsors and. They gave us airline tickets, and uh, Mr. Packer helped us with our hotel bills, and he wanted he wanted the Australian Open to be the best it could be. And uh, in his time, he did exactly that. And if you think, and I've often said this in some of my speeches around the country, that if you think about Nicholas Palmer and Player as the big three in golf, and you think that Jack Nicholas won six Australian Opens, and Gary Player won seven Australian Opens, and Mr. Palmer won one. And you think about doing that in the late 60s and early 70s. That was a heck of an effort to fly from South Africa or uh, Florida, where Jack lived, to, to come to Australia and, and let young, aspiring players like myself have a chance to see what you know, world-class golfers were and uh, it was very important to the future of Australian golf that their contribution allowed young guys to, to look and learn, and that's what it was. It was quite remarkable for that period of time.
1: One of the great rounds was at Meridian in 1981, where you said you don't remember even much of that round.
6: Well, I remember maybe more of that round than most, uh, only because it was... a a U.S. Open and it was on a Sunday and it was a little bit deeper into my career Um, and it got so much uh, publicity because of the Greens in regulation and and the uh, methodicalness of of that. I I remember not all of it. I remember number one. uh, I remember uh, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. A uh, few of the holes in between, I don't remember. Mm. But, uh, you yeah, know, that was, that was a
1: good day. So how would you compare that round to the one at Oakland Hills, which aside from the last hole...
6: Yeah. W- you had to bring that up, didn't you?
1: Well, well <laughs> while it was par for 63, I mean, I mean that was going to be the lowest score ever in a major. It was yeah. cl- Even with the double bogey, it was still one of the great rounds ever played in major championship yeah. golf. So, well, so- and it was
6: that was on a course that Hogan had labeled the monster yeah. uh, because of its new design by Robert Trent Jones. And, uh, you know, if that had been a 17-hole tournament, that would have been maybe the best. I think the best golf that I ever played was when I won the American Golf Classic at Firestone. Mm. I played I, boge- I, was, I played the first two days with Mr. Palmer. I bogeyed the very first hole, and then I played 66 holes without making a bogey. And and that was a hard hard golf course for guys playing old golf balls and wooden clubs and everything. That was really difficult. I think that, and I only even then I only won by four. So I think that was some of the best four round golf that I'd ever played.
3: You win your two majors. Included in those, David, are sixteen top ten finishes in major championships, which is a really great record, and you know goes to why you're rightfully um, eventually inducted into the you know World Golf Hall of Fame. How proud of um, your ability to produce, um, you know, really good golf, something close to your best golf, you know, in major championships. How proud of that fact are you?
6: Well, I think it. I think a lot of that credit goes to guys like Gary Player. Guys like Jack Nicholas that that wanted to win majors and uh, the preparation towards winning majors was different than playing in regular tournaments and I think it's that way even today for the younger players. Um, but I'm amazed at how if you look at the Nicholas era when he won, he won 18 majors. But if you look at <clears throat> the players. <clears throat> Like Gary Player, I think won nine majors against Nicholas in his high, in his career. You know, Tom Watson won eight, you know Lee Trevino won six, Raymond Floyd won five. So other uh, you know Nick Faldo won I think six. There were a multitude of multiple major winners when Nicholas was at his absolute peak in that twenty-year period. And you don't see that today in golf. I mean, uh, you look at uh, McElroy. He came out blistering and won four majors out of the blue. And then in the last two or three years hasn't come close. Uh, And, you know, and I should interject and and change a little bit. And I think that I think Australian golf is blessed uh, that they have like a Jordan Spieth that wants to come to Australia and considers that a very important tournament for him to win and we're lucky that he's won and we're lucky that he wants to come back and play again because uh, he's really keeping that tournament alive and, and sponsor happy because of uh, his ability to come down there. So I take my hat off to him for doing that. Peter you here. Really enjoy listening inside the rope. Guys have always got something very interesting to talk about. Hope you enjoyed the program.
2: This is Martin Blake. Senior writer for golf.org.au and sometime co-host of the show this year. My favourite part for the year was the interview with so Yoon Yu, Yoo, the South Korean superstar, world women's number one player. In particular, her chat about her aspirations as a, as a number one player, and also her peculiar love of an Australian icon, that being Vegemite. Have a great Christmas. Hope to see you back here at the same time, same place next year. So on you, thanks for joining us on the show.
7: Oh, hello. Thanks for having
0: me.
1: You were about the fifth best player in the world for four years, five years. You sort of sat there just below the best players. And then you went and saw Cameron McCormick in January last year. Now you're number one. So my question would be, do you think he made a big difference to you or just... What sort of difference did he make to your game to allow you to get to number one?
7: Uh, of course, Cameron uh, helped me out to get the different level. Um, because since I started to working with him, I had a massive swing change, and that swing change made me hit longer than uh, before. Also, uh, I hit it more accurately. Also, at the same time, he—I think—he makes me more um, like creative player. Like every time when I take a lesson from him, he never asks me to hit it straight. He always asks me to do something. Um, like special. I mean, it's not like special, but, but like compared to how I played a few years ago, it was special. Like every time when I have to, I mean, he asked me to hit, like, okay, so I can cut shot, like low draw, high draw. He asked me to do several different things. Then, to be honest, you know, when I first time did it, I was like, I have no idea why I should do this all, all this practice. But actually, when I went to golf course, all that experience with him is really big help. Also, um, it that said ability helped me out to uh, make less bogies, actually. Um, so, of course, he helped me out uh, a lot of things. Also, I'd like to give my credit to my, you know, Katie Tom Watson. I've been working with them since my rookie year. We've been working together, like, six years. we become, like, brother and sister. But um, when I first started working with him, I, I had no idea about, um, like, course architecture or I didn't really have much knowledge about, um, um, like, golf skills or golf history, but um, since we started to work together, he taught me a lot of things about the golf history and uh, golf architecture. That's made me more enjoy the golf course, and that makes me more enjoy to have new skills. So I'd like to give credit to my coach, Cameron McCormick, and my caddy and my big brother, Tom Washington,
1: as well. No, 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 hang on. (laughs) We we can't be giving too much credit to Tommy. (laughs) Correct. I mean, he'll he'll start getting a big head.
7: To be honest, I cannot give much credit to all Australians. Unfortunately, I have, like, all Australians as my staff, so, well, I'm surrounded by all Australians, and what I learned is all Australians all kind of like, you know, like bad stuff. I mean, I, I don't want to use actual, actual worry, what I'm normally using, because it's way to using it to podcast, but, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm surrounded by all the, and, uh, um, all these definitely helped me out to um, get like next level. I mean, better player. At the, and, and at the same time, I got thirty miles from them.
3: <laughs> <laughs> there might be children listening to this, so yeah. So maybe, maybe <laughs> we just keep that uh, for for the off air record. <laughs> have,
4: have you got something that Tommy has actually <laughs> taught you in this in in yeah. the in the slang words, so Yon, Has he actually taught you something that you can actually uh, reproduce for us without getting us in trouble? No. Yeah,
7: for sure. You know, I play. I played with Stacey uh, few month, uh was it a few months ago. Yeah, a few tournaments ago. Then she was like, Tommy, you've ruined her life. She never swears before. Now she swears more than I. <laughs> <laughs> so sounds like one of the Aussies ruined my life.
3: <laughs> <laughs> there is one more question I wouldn't mind asking about, you know, you becoming the world number one player. When that moment is realized, uh-huh. um, that when you teed up in your next tournament, which happened to be the PGA Championship, did it feel different for you? Uh-huh. Did you feel like you were carrying in extra expectations? Did you deal with that okay?
7: Um, it was definitely feel different. I we got a, like little ceremony to got the like number one player in the player beep, which is like special color, like green color. So we did some ceremony for that beep. So that makes me more nervous about the heat off first tournament as number one player in the world. Um, but um, luckily, I watched uh, in the parts part uh, interview day before uh, I teed off and she said, when I become a like number one, I thought I have to play well all the time that that makes me um, that gave me extra pressure. so um, what I had to do was just not think about that. I saw what she talked, what while she talked so while I played I and I was keep talking to myself, okay, you know, I know circumstances be changed but I'm still so and you know I'm still mm-hmm. the same person so I had to had a tap talk quite quite often but it was definitely different but good thing was um as soon as i played like three or four holes i started to just think about um just present just how i'm going to play this hole how i'm going to hit this shot so um after three or four holes i got much more relaxed and i was able to play as normal but um well i'm I'm not gonna lie it definitely have extra pressure but at the same time. That's what I, want, I always wanted to do. Then finally dreams come true. So I really want to handle this situation wisely. Then I want to be um, great number one instead of just great players.
4: So, Yon, I'll put my hand up, and I think you know I'm one of your biggest fans. But it's really sad to hear you talk about the ANA inspiration in reference to Lexi, mm. that there might be some sort of question mark on it. Because I would imagine that 99.99% of the world's golfing fans would just, you know, applaud you as you as you as you pick up your second major championship. Is it something that when you know you're obviously involved by default in the Lexi Thompson rules drama? Is it something that? bothers you still or is it something that you've let go or is it something that people ask you about what's your Uh, feelings
7: well actually it's totally understandable because if i think that situation is my situation to be honest i maybe i was going to feel like end of the world you know it's not really easy to win the major championship then you know when you blow the chance because the rule issued especially you know day before the final round it's going to be really tough also we had a tournament in America, so we have tons of American fans came out, so it is totally understandable to keep people, start um, talking about the Lexi situation. Um, but, um, well, there was a very unfortunate situation, but golf role is golf role, so we have to accept it. But at the same time, I just really wanted to say, um, golf roles exist for protect the players, not giving a bad um, you know situation to players. So, uh, hopefully, for the future, we're not going to have those kind of hassle, and hopefully, we can have um, wise observation as
4: well. Well, we like to think that your personality lines up pretty well with Australians, and you've obviously got a great affinity with Australia, and you've got a, you're surrounded by a heap of Aussies wherever you go. Here's a hard one for you, So Younghoon. We don't want to pin you down, but we love to have you back with the Women's Australian Open next year. What's what's the deal?
7: Um, I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to go back, but I miss Australia so much. I I miss Vegemite, I miss, um, you know, all great um, food in Australia, and I love, I mean, I miss all the great golfers in Australia, and great fans as well, Then of course Kangaroo as well, so, <laughs> yeah, right now I'm planning to play Australia Women's Open, and um, hopefully a lot of fans coming out and cheering the women's golf.
4: Yeah, and I'll tell you, we'll we'll have jars if you rock up to the first tee. We'll have jars of Vegemite there, ready for you to take away.
3: Do you actually truly like Vegemite? This Pre- is this is one of the great questions because a lot of uh, people who are you know foreigners to Australia, um, they don't they can't understand uh, the whole Vegemite thing. Do you truly like Vegemite? I truly love Vegemite.
5: So when I
3: first
7: tried Vegemite it was um, I think when I was nineteen or eighteen. <laughs> then um, I had a lunch with my friends, and my friends. Was- Know, handed me to one of these speak with um uh, what is it called the chocolate jam? Um Nutella. Nutella Nutella. Nutella. So Nutella. Person of Nutella. Yeah. yeah, Nutella yeah, Nutella, try it. And I tried it and he was expecting my ugly face, which is, you know, like veggie might have a you know, unique taste. But ended up I was like, Oh my god, I love this, what is this? I know it's not chocolate. I I know it's not Nutella, what is this? And he was like, Oh my God, how can you love this as cream? You know, like <laughs> If someone's not Australian, it's hard to like this, you know, Vegemite thing. It's like, is, that what, is that called Vegemite? Then actually, you know, since then, I always loved it. Then, well, also the like, truth is, I mean, since I know Vegemite's name as Vegemite, I always thought Vegemite um, ingredients based on vegetable, but <laughs> I found out it's not. It's, <laughs> it's um, based on, what, do you, uh, what is it, to make um, some
3: yeast? yeah yeah. Yeast. Yeah,
7: yeast. yeah. So I'm kind of in shock about the ingredient because I always believe that uh, based on vegetable, that's why I named Vegemite. But no matter what you know, you guys use to make Vegemite, I love to have Vegemite. I love to have butter on it, Vegemite on it, and if I added avocado, that's perfect.
3: Oh, people love that stuff. People love the Vegemite avocado. Yeah. That's the that's like a that is like a really trendy dish over here in Australia these days. Yeah.
4: There'll be a jar of it at Kuyonga in your locker room, Sir John.
7: Please keep the promise.
1: I'm going
6: to check on my locker
4: next year. G'day, guys. It's Ryan Russell here. I know I'm a long way from home
1: playing on the Latin America tour and living in the US, but I keep up with all my Australian golf by Inside the Ropes.
3: That's been Inside the Ropes for 2017. Thanks so much for tuning in and contributing. It wouldn't be worth doing it if we didn't have you lot out there having a listen to it from time to time. Appreciate your commitment to the program. Hopefully we'll be back to do it all again next year.